0: I want to start off in the garden with Adam and Eve. Why do I love the garden so much? Because I think it does such a great job of explaining why we do the things that we do nowadays and why we think the way that we think. And I want to start off with this question. How many laws were Adam and Eve given in the garden? They were given one. One law. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because the day that you do, you shall surely die. There's something about us as human beings that think we have the ability to follow rules. We can follow laws. It's not a problem, right? And we think, and you see it today, we think our biggest problem is we just don't follow rules well enough. If we could do a better job of following rules, then everything will be okay. And so what we do is we continue to pass more and more laws because we think that the problem is we need better laws. We need to follow them better. So you see, that's one side of the coin. Then the other side is this. The other side is, well, but I also want to have the ability to choose when and when I don't want to really follow it because there are some things that I look at and I'm like, yeah, I'm not really feeling that law right there. So I'm just going to kind of skirt around that too. Right? We always try to find a way around it. Isn't that exactly what happened in the garden? Because what Satan says to Adam and Eve is, did God really say you're going to die? No. He just doesn't want you to be like him. Right? There's something intriguing about being able to determine good and evil on how you feel it should be. What he's basically saying to them is, be your own God. He's only going to keep you back. Be your own God. Right? I want to share a story with you guys. So I went to the University of Notre Dame. And for those of you that are not familiar it's the number three team in the country right now in college football, okay? So I went to the University of Notre Dame. And uh, and there was one rule that said if you have a car on campus, you have to pay $50 parking permit. And I decided I wasn't going to let the man tell me what to do, right? I wasn't going to get a parking permit. So I went to the store and bought a $35 car cover. And so what I would do is I would go out, do what I had to do, pull into the parking lot, whip out the car cover, and just place it over my car. Bada bing, bada boom, right? I wasn't going to do that. There's something in us that says, yeah, I know what this says, but can I find a way around that because it doesn't really suit me. What happens in our life when we spend time trying to avoid that little law that we don't like? Because it points to a larger issue in our lives, which is we each believe that we are king. I am a king, and you guys are living in my kingdom. The problem is every one of you out there believes the same thing. And king, and as a king, I had the choice whether to follow the rule or not, because that's what little kings do. And what we're going to look at today is the depth of our sin when we believe that we are king and the reach of grace. The depth of sin and the reach of grace and see what happens when we become a king. I'll tell you guys right now, this literally is a Bible 101. If you want to know what the Bible is really about, it's going to be this today. We see this in Scripture. No, this doesn't mean that you don't have to come next week or the rest of the year, because now that you've got it, but we're going to sort of summarize it today. So we're going to be in 1 Kings 21, and I want to start off this morning by just praying. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, and we thank you for the opportunity to come before you, Lord. God, we pray, please convict us of where we stand right now. Please convict us, Lord, of what we do and how we always turn from you, God. And don't just convict us, but lead us to yourself, Father. We pray that this sermon would lead us to you, most importantly. And we ask this and pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I want to start off in uh, 1 Kings, we're in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 21. And it's a little bit longer one, but we're going to take it piece by piece. And it's up on the screen for you, those of you that don't have your Bible, with you. I want to start off with this. It says this, now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. And after this Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. So here is a situation. King Ahab has a big palace, and he goes and looks at his neighbors, and he says, I want what he's got. Sell me your vineyard so that I can make a vegetable garden out of it. And you know what? I'll give you something better. Or I'll give you money for it. And what is Naboth's response? He says, no, the Lord forbid that I would give you the inheritance of my father. Now, let me just give you the background of why he says that. When you go back in the Old Testament and you look at the law, one of the things that says in the book of Numbers, in, verse th- in chapter 36, verse 7, says this, the inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And then you go and you look at the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel 46, 18, says this, the prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property. He shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property, so that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. What it says is this, in the Mosaic law, which is the law of Moses, that ancestral property should remain in the family and not be sold so naboth is following the rules i'm told to not sell you my property but to keep it in my family why because god owns the land and he has given it to us as a divine gift and a trust and what ahab is doing is saying trying to go around that law right there so that's one aspect of the law but there's another law in the ten commandments that says do not covet don't covet your neighbor's house your neighbor's wife your male servant your female servant his ox his donkey or anything that is your neighbors and what is he doing he's coveting ahab is disobeying the law why because he's going to naboth and saying i will give you something better that's exactly what satan says to adam and eve you want something better god is only going to keep you back I'll give you something even better than what God has done. Satan has been using the same tricks on everyone. So what does Ahab do? He goes home, and literally the word is he's annoyed and he's sulky. He's like a little spoiled kid. And what does he do then? He does what any good man would do. He goes and he tells his wife, and he gets her to do his dirty work. Look at verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel's wife said to him, do you now govern Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the the, vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. He goes home and he's like a sulky, spoiled little boy, and she's like, are you not the king? Don't worry. I will take care of it for you. Trust me, there's many times I wish my wife would say that to me, right? But she gets involved now. She reminds him first and foremost, who is king? You are. You see, her perspective is different from his. Why? Because her father is the king of Sidon, right? And it's in the land of Canaan. And what they used to do with land was, I want your land. I'm going to come and take it. And they would take it. But this is not Sidon. This is Israel where God rules. God owns the land. And God says, no, you just don't go and take somebody's land. It is theirs because it's a gift that I've given them. So they're both looking at that and they're both disregarding what God's law. They have a contempt for what God says. You see the pattern of sin in both of them. Sin offers something better than what God does. Sin says you are a king and you are on your throne and if you want it, take it. It's yours. And it's the sin in us that makes it really easy to follow those who are doing wrong, right? It's one of the reasons why why God says to the Israelites before they're coming into the land, he says, do not mix with the people that are there. He doesn't say it because he's racist. He says it because he's like, I know your heart and I know what's inside of you and it's going to be really easy for you to be drawn away from me to follow them. It's the reason why he says to King Solomon, don't marry foreign women because they're going to take your heart away. And what does he do? He marries foreign women and they take his heart away. It's the reason why the Apostle Paul says, don't marry unbelievers. Not because of the most horrible people in the world, because he knows is you guys are going to be on two different paths and they're going to take your heart away from me. And that's the reason why the Apostle Paul, when he writes his letter to the Ephesian church, he literally tells them, look, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You walked following the course of the world, the power of the air, the spirit that is in the work of the sons of disobedience. We all were there. That's where your body and your flesh wants to go. Don't follow that. He knows how easy it is to follow that. And to be like the rest of mankind. And what you see is as they begin to follow, you start to watch the downward spiral of how a little disregard from the law begins to be something bigger. Watch what his wife does now. Verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth, curse God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. So she says, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to write a letter with your seal and your name. I'm going to send it to all the elders and the leaders of the city. And we're going to proclaim a fast. Now, you would normally proclaim a fast when there was something in Israel, like there was some like, evil or calamity in Israel, and they, they had to find a scapegoat for it and said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to set a table, and I want you to take Naboth and set him at the head of the table. I'm thinking of Naboth, what he's thinking. Does he ever in his mind think, like, you're going to make me the head of the table? Man, this is fantastic. Wait a minute, why? But he never asked the question. So they set him at the head of the table, and I want you to take two worthless men And I want you to go and have them sit across from him. And then I want you to accuse him of cursing God and the king. And when he does that, and when they do that, take him outside the city and stone him to death. And you know what? They did it. Ahab is complicit with it. You got the elders are all going along with the scheme right now. And then he's dead. And then word is sent back to her that says he's dead. And she looks at Ahab and says, Now, arise and take possession of the land. She goes and she does that. You know, the interesting thing about sin is doesn't sin look at other people as being worthless that takes those two men and says, look, I don't care who they are. Just find me two worthless men and just use them to do what I need to get done. And sin makes it really hard for us to follow the law, as we've seen. But you know also what sin does? Sin says, I'm actually going to use the law for how I want to use it. Why? Because in the law, it says, in order to accuse somebody, you need two witnesses. There's my two worthless men right there. And in the law, it says there is a penalty for cursing God and the king, right? Which is what? Death. We're going to accuse them of cursing God and the king. And in the law, it says when you do stone somebody, you take them outside the city. Where do they take them? They take them outside the city. That's interesting. At the end of the day, who was actually the one that was following the law? Aboth. And what happened to him? <laughs> he gets killed. Naboth gets killed. Sin is taking lives. It considers two men worthless, so it uses them, throws them away. It takes the life of Naboth. It takes Naboth's sons, because when you read later in Scripture, it was actually him and his sons who were all killed. And eventually you see what happens to, to Ahab and Jezebel. I love this Paul Miller quote that says this. Here is what life is. Life is this, either you die to yourself so that I can give you life or I keep life for myself and all I do every day is take the lives of each and every one of you for myself. That's the choices that we have when it comes to sin. Either I die to myself so that I can give you life or I keep it for myself so that I take your life every day. The question is this, how do you confront sin? You do it with honesty in truth. Watch what it says here. Verse 17, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, who was in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick up your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, oh, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and cut you off from, Ahab, cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, A dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. First and foremost, ew. Right? Pretty gruesome. But literally, Elijah is now sent to go and talk to Ahab. And this is not the first time. I, I wonder if Elijah is thinking to himself, like, you've got to be kidding me. Again? Like this guy just doesn't get it. And so God tells him, I want you to go and to be honest with him and tell him the truth of what is about to happen with him because what he has done is wrong. He is wrong for what he has done. And he goes in there and and Ahab sees him and what does he say? Oh, you have found me, oh my enemy. It was almost like he was waiting for him to get there. And he gets there and he says, yes, I have. And You know what's going to happen? The dogs are going to lick up your blood the same place they did with Nahab. And he pronounces judgment and disaster because Ahab has provoked God to anger and has made Israel sin. He says, I'm going to burn you up. I'm going to cut off every male from Ahab and Israel. Your dynasty is going to come to an end just like that of Jeroboam and Basha. And the dogs are going to eat Jezebel, your wife, within the walls of Israel. The walls of Jezreel. And he says, anybody who belongs to Ahab in this city, the dogs are going to eat And anybody who belongs to you in the country, the birds of the heaven shall eat too. Elijah has the tough job of going and confronting Ahab with what he has done, which is wrong. I'll tell you guys, when I was at Notre Dame, we had one really important rule, which was don't cheat. Don't cheat. And so I had, it was my junior year, and I, had, uh, I was in HR, like my major was HR. And um, so I had one of the most important HR classes. And so we got to the end of the year. It was final time, and we had a take-home test, which was five questions, five essay questions. You choose three. So I was in the computer lab. I remember when they first had, like, Apple computers in there. I thought they were the greatest thing ever with the point and click. So I get there, I'm working, I'm pounding away. And, uh, and my buddy of mine from the class, one of my good friends, he sits right next to me. And so we're working, and, uh, and I'm pounding out these three things, and he's still stuck on the first one. And so I'm like, okay. I'm like, do you understand like what she's asking for? And he's like, not really. And so I'm like, I know he had missed a couple days, so I gave him my notes from class. He still didn't get it. And I'm like, okay. Here's my test. Just read it to get an idea of what she's asking for. I said, but do me a favor. When you're done, just shred it in the shredder. He was like, okay. I go home. Uh, We get our grades in the mail, right? And uh, for the class, I have an I. I means incomplete. And I'm like, huh. Now, the only other time I've got an I in my life is when there was another class at school where Kids have been caught cheating, so they gave everybody in the class an I so they could figure out like, who did what. So I'm looking at him like an I. I'm like, i got to figure this out. So I called his house, and he was away for the summer. So I talked to his mom. I said, what did he get in such and such class? And she was like, he got an I. I was like, hmm. I called somebody else from the class. What did you get? I got a B. I'm like, okay. Two weeks before class, I get a letter that says, you are to appear in front of the honesty committee. And so we get there, he goes in first, he's there for about a half an hour, and he comes out and he's trying to mumble something to me on the side of his mouth really quick, like tell them such and such. And so I get in there, and they have a test side by side, and I kid you not, it was almost the exact same thing. It was so close, that the teacher actually circled all the words that were different. Like he would change the word, the. So like the teacher probably read it and was like, I just read this test. Right? You see, what was the rule? Do not cheat. I tried to circumvent that rule because I decided, no, it's not that bad. And it was almost like Satan was saying to me, did, did, does the law really say that you can't help a friend? Right? So I tried to go around. And now, Because of the lie and the deceit, now we're being faced with what? The truth. Honesty and the truth. I mean, I literally, after I saw the test, wanted to be there and be like, excuse me one second. You are an idiot. Right? But I was like, I'll tell the truth. I said, I gave him the test. I said, he was struggling. I said, my intention was not for him to copy it. I said, but he did. So we both ended up getting Fs on the test, failing the test, which brought my uh, average for that class to like a D (laughs) minus. So this is like one of the most important classes in my major, and now I get a D minus in that class right there. Oftentimes when it comes to being honest and telling the truth, and not just telling the truth, but facing sin and lying and deceit with honesty, it is the path of suffering right? It's the path of suffering. Elijah goes to Ahab to tell him the honest truth about what he's doing is wrong. And he's telling him, as a result, here is God's judgment against you. But the funny thing is, Elijah never demands that Ahab change. He doesn't tell him, what you should do is this. He only tells him, what is the truth? It's God's job to change people. You have no power to change people. That is God's job. How do you respond when people are honest with you, that you've done something wrong? Or how have people responded to you when we've been honest with them? How is there change? How is change possible when faced with honesty and truth? Understand this laws cannot change people laws can only tell you what is the difference between right and wrong the only way for change is there has to be a heart change and that's where god comes in because look what it says in verse 25 there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the lord like ahab whom jezebel his wife incited He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. What that literally means is verses 25 and 26 saying Ahab was the worst of the worst. We've been going through the book of 1 Kings. You notice that we've been spending so much time on Ahab. Isn't that amazing? The very absolute worst king of all in all the Bible they're literally spending so much time on him. And what happens? Ahab hears what he's done wrong, and he humbles himself before God, and he repents. And God relents on bringing disaster to him, but he says, "With the repercussions are going to follow to your family. They're going to have to deal with the repercussions. But sin and the debt of sin is being stored up. God relented because Ahab was humble And he repented. Repented literally means a change of mind. And when you look at Ahab, even though he did these horrible things, you look at the pattern of sin in his life, and you're actually looking at ourselves. We're looking in the mirror at ourselves because we do the same thing when it comes to God's law. The problem is, how do you fix it? Because it's not just passing more laws. We can't follow one We think we can add a whole bunch more laws. We're going to be able to follow them even better. What exactly do we need? Well, when we go back to the very beginning, you look at Adam and Eve. They were given one law, and Satan said to them, Yeah, did God really say you're going to die? What he was saying to them is, you can have something better. Don't listen to what God says, because if you don't, you'll get something even better. Be your own God. And God was honest in them when they broke the law and pronouncing judgment against mankind. But God showed grace and mercy to them even after they had sinned. But there were still repercussions, which was they were banned from the garden, they were banned, like pain and childbearing. But you know what? Sin, the debt of sin, was still being stored up. And then we move to Ahab and Jezebel, and it's the same thing again, right? Be your own God. You are king. Yeah, God has laws about property and coveting and killing. You don't have to follow that. Did God really say, if you want something better, do what you want to do? And God pronounces judgment on Ahab through Elijah's honesty. And Ahab repented, but his sons are going to have to deal with the repercussions. And sin's debt continues to be stored up. And now on the scene comes Jesus, right? And Satan says... Let's go to work again. Let's find Jesus at his weakest point when Jesus is fasting for 40 days because when you're hungry, you'll do some crazy things, right? And he says to him, hey, you're the son of God. You see that rock? turn into bread. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, nope, because that's not what my father told me to do. In fact, I don't just live off of bread alone. I live off of every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Satan says, okay, let's try a different angle. Okay, you want to follow what your father says. Hey, jump off this building, because in the word, it says that his angels will save you. And Jesus says, no, my father didn't tell me to do that, so I'm not going to do that either. And then he tries the last one, and he says, okay, look, let me bring you on of a mountain. I will give you the whole world if you just bow down to me. What he was telling Jesus was, be your own God. Don't listen to your father because he's going to get you killed. Do what you want to do. And that's the part that all of us would say, okay, I'll take it. I want the whole world. And Jesus doesn't do it. He obeys his father and it leads to his death. Jesus came and was honest about our situation. He was like, you are in trouble. You have something in you that makes it not possible for you to follow the law. You are sinful, and there is a judgment against you. Jesus came to be honest with us about the sin. Jesus goes and tells his disciples about the Pharisees, if I hadn't come to spoken with them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse because I came and I told them. Jesus was honest with the woman at the well of her condition. Jesus was honest with Simon the Pharisee about how he was treating people. Jesus was honest with Mary about how she was treating Martha. Jesus was honest about Judas and the deceit in his heart. Jesus was honest with the disciples about how they were going to turn from him. Jesus was honest with everyone, not for his benefit but for theirs. Jesus was telling them, true love is honest. And it tells people the difference between right and wrong, and when they're doing something that's not right. That's what Jesus came to do. And what he was saying was, God's judgment is on all of us. And I'm being honest with you about that. Because sin's debt had been stored up, and now God's wrath was about to be taken out. On Christ. All that sin, the debt, was being stored. And Jesus came to take it. Christ came for one reason. To die. He didn't come to tell us how to be a good person. He didn't come to tell you about, just follow the laws better. He came to say, you can't. And the debt is being paid. It's going to be paid. But it doesn't have to be paid on you. Christ came and took the wrath of God upon himself. And when you believe that Christ is your Lord and Savior, he gives his grace and his mercy on you. That's God's grace and mercy. It's for people who humble themselves and saying, Lord, I have broken your law. I need forgiveness, Father. I believe in what Christ has done on the cross. You took out your wrath on your own son. Jesus came to give his life so that we could have life. And salvation is not about following laws better. It's not about following laws. Laws cannot change people's heart. Only God can do that. Salvation is about a Savior coming Because we couldn't do it ourselves. You don't need a Savior if the problem is as simple as just follow the law better. You need a Savior when it comes to say, you can't follow the law better. I need your help, Lord. It's about placing my faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. And you know, here's the beautiful thing. I am considered righteous, not because of anything I've done. I'm considered righteous because of what he's done. He followed the law perfectly so that I could be considered righteous in the eyes of God. And it starts by recognizing that there is a king, and his name is Jesus. I am not the king. So what does that mean for us in our life? Number one, where is the little breaking of the law in your life? Huh? Where are you a king? Right? Where is Satan whispering to you, you're God, do what you want to do? right? Where have you, when you're driving from church and you're leaving and you are feeling such a high from church and somebody cuts you off and you get so hungry, right? Where have I murdered somebody in my thoughts, right? Where have I gone where the sign says kids two and under eat free and my daughter is three, but she looks like she's two. (laughs) Yeah, she's two, Where do I find the law and just try to skirt it just a little bit that benefits me? You know what Jesus says in Luke, in the book of Luke? He literally says, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. If you don't believe me, turn on the news and look at what's happening in Hollywood. Everything is coming to light. It will come to light to light, And even if you have a little sin that is not revealed, eventually it will be revealed in your character, and your moral integrity. Because if I skirt the law over here, I'm going to skirt the law over here. And eventually it does catch up to you. So where is the little sin in the breaking of law in your life? Number two, sin needs to be faced with honesty and truth. Jesus' honesty led to his what? Death. Honesty feels like death is anyone like me i hate confrontation i absolutely despise confrontation right i don't like it why because i need you to like me so when i confront you about things that maybe you have done wrong there's a very good possibility you're going to be angry with me and i don't like that And so I avoid that right there, right? I go through my life avoiding confrontation. Why? Because I thought that as a Christian, the loving thing would be to not tell you that what you're doing is wrong. And then God confronted me, right? There was a situation where somebody had said something to me that was not nice. And so I was like, God, please change this person. And God was like, I can, but I'm going to do it through your honesty. And I was like, No, because I don't like that. And what he was saying to me is, every day I call you to pick up your cross and die. It's the path of suffering. And he says, that's the path I want you to take. I want you to confront the person and tell them that what they did was not right. And I was like, it literally feels like, for me, going to my death. But that was the path that he was telling me to go. Because the normal path of the Christian life is what? When there's a death, there's a what? Resurrection. It happens every day in these little, little ways. And so I went and I said, You know, when you said this, it hurt my feelings. When you say this, this is how it makes me feel. I'm not demanding that they change. I can only make you aware of what you're doing is not right. And I saw God work through that. You face sin with honesty in truth God's truth. Love is honest with people for their sake, not for mine. That's the loving thing to do. I don't demand that you change. That's God's job. So where is the little breaking of the law? Sin needs to be faced with honesty in truth. And lastly, live in God's grace. God grace literally means like it's undeserved mercy. And I need that for salvation. The reason why I am saved is not because Keith is a good person, because Keith follows rules, because I looked at what Christ did and said, yeah, I want that because I turned away from you, God. I want your salvation. And he gives it to me as a free gift. The Bible is a book of people who do not deserve it, but who God gives it to them. As you see with Ahab, in the very beginning... We were always meant to live and depend on God. But because of sin, it means that we believe that we have an independent ability to live our lives and to find righteousness in our own sake, in our own way. We were never meant to do that. You were never meant to do it alone. We need grace for salvation, and we need grace on an everyday basis. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I mess up daily. And I constantly need to go to God and say, Forgive me, God. I just saw how I spoke to my daughter. Forgive me, God, because I find myself just getting so angry right now at my wife when she does this. When she's constant grace, grace, grace. That's the God that we serve. He is a loving, graceful God. And I'm drawing on that grace every day. I'll be honest with you guys. At Notre Dame, security came up to my car, lifted up the car cover. Ran my tags, sent me a fine, $50. I spent $35 on a car cover, $50 on a fine, and $50 to buy a permit that I should have bought in the beginning. I spent $135 for something that I should have done. I'll tell you guys, I spent my time running at school, and I was literally, literally taking a car cover to cover up my deceit and my lies. And eventually, what I was hiding was eventually revealed. And I ended up paying a higher price because of it. But let me just tell you this, and here's the beautiful thing about the gospel and in life. It's Jesus Christ who came to pay the higher price. And he came to actually cover all of our sins and all of our deceit. It was him. Pray with me.